Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the Osher Ginsberg podcast. I'm Osher Ginsberg. I don't know why I'm singing, but I am. <laughs> ah, thanks for being here. Today's episode is with my guest, journalist Emma Abarici. She is something else. You can find her on Twitter at A L B E R I C I E. A L B E R I C I E. That's her Twitter handle. She's on there quite a bit. Let her know you heard her here. This episode is brought to you by the wonderful people at patreon.com slash osher, a fine group of women and men who have banded together and helped me bring this show. All you've got to do is uh, pop on to that website, patreon.com slash osher, and you can make a pledge to uh, pledge some cash to help make this show. The money goes pretty much directly to Andy Ma, my audio producer, and... Uh, Andy uh, produces the show each and every week. Without Andy, we couldn't make this show. So you're uh, giving money to me and I give it to Andy and then the show happens because this year just got crazy busy, which is great, but um, because of you, I'm able to make a show. The reward is that if that you pledge uh, five bucks a month, you can pledge more, I don't mind, um, you get uh, access to exclusive episodes of which there are more coming, I promise you. Um and uh, you get access to exclusive episodes that are made solely for you. Speaking of exclusive episodes, I like to give uh, a zip file of the exclusives as they exist today to one person that comments on the podcast each and every week because, for some reason, comments and uh, downloads help me get onto the iTunes charts, which helps a lot more people find out about the show, and it's uh, very, 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 very helpful. It's the next best thing you can do to telling someone uh, to or showing them how to download the show. So... Um, 
I will pick one random commenter from the iTunes comments page for this show, and it is uh, Anders of Sydney. Anders of Sydney, if that's you, you can send me an email, email at gmail.com. Osha has a natural, confident interview style, a smooth, kind voice, and a broad church of guests each week. Listen if you get sick of listening to Will Anderson. <laughs> Sorry, Will. I know Will listens. <laughs> you should listen to Will Anderson. You should listen to Tofop when I'm, you know, in the week when I'm not here. Uh, if that's you, Anders of Sydney, send me an email, send us your email at gmail.com and I'll get that zip file to you. I hope your week was good. I'm actually on holidays right now. I've recorded this 10 days ago and I'm excited because uh, I haven't had a week away all year um, pretty much uh, between shooting television and being on radio. The two schedules have overlapped a lot, so I haven't had a week where both of them are not doing anything all year long and I'm very excited because I haven't had... Uh, any days off since pretty much uh, January. So I'm thrilled. Um, I'm pretty, all I'm going to do is uh, sleep, eat, get some scuba divers in and read some books all while holding the hand of my beloved Audrey. That's about all I'm going to do. Um, I'm looking forward to another week without my phone. Uh, for those of you who listened last week, you'll know that I gave up my uh, smartphone for a week and I just had a brick. It actually worked out pretty well. And I'm going to get back on the brick, I think, for another week. It's been helping me stay a lot more calm, not being on the phone all the time. I'm certainly less distracted. I'm certainly able to focus on things a lot more. And most definitely, I'm able to sleep a whole lot better. Uh, That's the really good part about it. Uh, But I did, when I did plug my SIM card back into my uh, phone last two Fridays ago, I'm telling you, I just got lost in an endless loop of Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat, and Facebook. By the time I'd finished checking the feed of the other three, there was new stuff to look at on the first one. And I seriously, I wasted about an hour in an airport lounge just doing that, not looking at anything else. Oh, fuck. I'm lucky that my brain gets stuck on things and it helps me finish jobs sometimes, but other times it's just, it's not healthy, I'm telling you. So uh, it's good to put it down. I did miss listening to podcasts though, so I need to figure out how I can self-regulate those things on an iPhone and still have access to podcasts. Yeah. I'll see how I go when I get back to work, just doing a regular week of work without it. We'll see how that works out. Uh, But thanks also, yes, to everybody that watched The Bachelorette this week, uh, which is the new show that's just started. I think it means a lot uh, that you are there watching the show. I hope you enjoyed the show. We all work very hard on it. Georgia Love is our Bachelorette, and she's a lovely human being. Some of the guys are just legends. It's really nice to be around them. I hope you see that. I hope you get that. And um, I'm looking forward to enjoying the show with you on Twitter again this week. But let me tell you about my guest that you'll listen to me converse with today. Emma Alberici is a journalist that lives in Sydney, Australia. She's originally from Melbourne, uh, but she moved up here to, uh, to work. She hosts the national nightly current affairs show, Late Line, on the ABC. She was formerly the European correspondent for the ABC, and she now, for a living, holds our public figures accountable every night of the week in uh, pretty much fantastic interviews. Honestly, though, her her take-no-prisoners interviewing style, it's pretty intense and so intense, in fact, she's come under critique from people as high up the chain as our Prime Minister. She and I talk about this because she sees her role who as someone who has the job of holding those in the public eye accountable to their policy. And I think it's actually really cool the way she does it. But 
until about the last 20, 30 minutes. No, it's not a lie. Uh, that's a lie. Uh, but about the last 20, 30 minutes of this chat, she kind of flips the tables around and um, she starts to grill me about The Bachelor, particularly about what it is to uh, watch a show like The Bachelor with a young woman in the house. Uh, I think we get there. She is a striking woman. She has a striking presence, which I'm sure you get when you watch her. She absolutely dwarfed me with her intelligence and her speed of thought. It's clear, clear that I've got a long way to go uh, in my interviewing style because Emily is clearly, clearly a master. I'm just a goofy student compared to her ability, also her insight. Emma is whip smart. She's an intensely critical thinker. Uh, she's also stunningly beautiful, which is a triple threat that left me pretty much gobsmacked for our whole chat. Uh, but it was lovely to have her over to the house. It was lovely to get uh, her words and, of advice on, um, on raising girls, which uh, I will take all advice I can get because I need all the help I can get. But I hope you enjoy this chat with one of the ABC's powerhouse minds and presenters, Emma Alberici. How do you do? Oh, very well, thank you. Thanks for coming over. Thanks for having me. Were you up late last night? Uh, yes. Yeah? It's, you know, occupational hazard yeah. when you're on a show like Late Line. <laughs> it says it in the story. <laughs> yeah, I, and I do breakfast radio, hence my third cup of coffee today. Uh-huh. Uh, what time do you wrap when you are all wrapped and done? Do you have a debrief or do you just get the hell out of there? Uh, well, it kind of depends. These days it's much better than it was when I started on the show when we had just the first uh, the first run at 10.30 and now we're, we're run first on 24 at 9.30. Ah. So it's, amaz- it's incredible what a difference an hour makes right. to your life. So, so normally we're done by 10. Do you ever have to hang out after the show to do interviews overseas? Uh, no, generally if we do an interview overseas, we'll do it live. Oh, I guess so with the time difference. Yeah, yeah. The overseas ones are generally much more uh, amenable to our time. Yeah, certainly Europe. Yeah. Certainly Europe would be. Yeah, the US is a little more tricky. Do you mind coming into our studio at 5.30 a.m.? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I did that for, uh, for many a year doing radio back here. Yeah, yeah. Well, at From, least people know you here when yeah. you're asking someone in the US to speak to Australian. Well, you say, will you come in for ABC? Uh, sure. ABC Australia. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Not quite the same. But you live, you live nearby. You live a few beaches over. I do. It's extraordinary, the city is, because you lived overseas for quite a while. Yeah. Um, so when you come back and you're like, hang on, I could live in a major city and buy a beach? Mm. That it's isn't super special. polluted, like, like, say, for example, in Rio or Thailand or something? Mm-hmm. This is, it's just mind-boggling, isn't it? It is. And, and when we were living overseas and we only came back once in the four years for a holiday when the when the plane comes over Sydney, there's nothing like it. There really isn't. It's know. always at dawn. Mm-hmm. You see those cliffs mm-hmm. at Cornell. Mm-hmm. Take that it's big left special. turn. Yeah, you can't you can't beat it. That's right. Yeah, there's nothing. I think Paul Kelly sang a song about it. Mm-hmm. Have you ever seen Sydney from a seven forty seven? Yeah, exactly. He's right. Exactly. <laughs> from night by night by day yeah. by morning, even when there's a storm, it's. Did you grow Special. up around here? No, I grew up in Melbourne. Oh. Hmm. That's uncommon that you would then come <laughs> to Sydney. Don't start. Um, 
yeah, no, I, I grew up in Melbourne and, and uh, came to Sydney for a job. Yeah. So your folks came here, though. Like my folks came here on a boat. Your folks... Well, my mum came here on a boat. My dad came here on a plane. My my folks came on a uh, boat in... They were what in uh, modern parlance you would call economic refugees. Oh, my mum was a displaced person. <laughs> <laughs> Which I think is a much nicer name because uh-huh. it's like, well, you had, no, you had nothing to do with it yeah, and you, you can't go back there. You're a displaced person mm-hmm. and an economic refugee. Absolutely. It, Italy was fucked after World War well, II. It was, yes. The bottom of it was just rubble. <laughs> yeah. Um, a lot of people don't realise that that's where a lot of it went down. Absolutely. And, and my uncles, um, two of them were prisoners of war. Uh, my father my father was one of eight, six brothers and, and two sisters, and he was the third youngest. So he remembers, the, he, he remembered, he's been gone now 25 years, he remembered the war um, vividly uh, because he used to tell the story, I was only thinking about this, uh, this morning that when he was he started smoking when he was nine years old because he used to go fishing for the family they were very poor they lived near the Po River up in the north of Italy that runs through Reggio Emilia uh, um, sort of just below uh, Milan and um, he used to go to the river to fish for dinner and there were a bunch of German soldiers this is during the war he was about nine years old and so they would um, they would play a game with him. They'd throw a little grenade into the water and kill all the fish so they'd come to the surface and he didn't have to bother putting <laughs> his line into the water and they'd give him cigarettes. <laughs> Isn't that... In- and my mum was... My mum told me about this because she spent... Frankie, cool it, bro. See what I mean? He's just... Frankie! He's a little put out by the lack of attention. Yeah, he gets like that. Um... My mum talks about this, is that she spent, when they fled Lithuania, I think they took about a year and a half or so to get finally down to the, the refugee camp in, in Germany where they ended up um, living. And, and she said that even though there was a war on, families were still families. There were still fights around the dinner table. Mm. There was humanity that still existed. Mm. And, you know, you think now where every civilian is a target in many war zones, no matter what age, particularly a young boy, mm. you know, a nine-year-old boy, a lot of modern conflicts would see this kid's going to be angry at us in three years when he's old enough to hold a gun or mm. a year when he's old enough to hold mm. a gun. Frankie, I'm trying to be serious. Seriously. Come over here. Right, the, the, there are, you, yeah, there, is, there are kind of no rules of war now, right? Mm. Where, you know, I'm sure it's a particularly tough time to be a leader sending troops anywhere because yeah. the calculation is so... <laughs> the, perils, the perils are working from home. I'm trying to pacify an What angry... do they say about animals and children? I'm pr- pr- trying to pacify an angry cavoodle. Um, but, you know, that these, these, these German soldiers had at least had some compassion, like this kid's got nothing to do with what's yeah. going on. Um, Let's fling him a cigarette. <laughs> yeah, well... If you think that's good. You know, they're trying to help. They can see <laughs> yeah. that the kid's just trying to... Yeah. Eat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they're just, you know, yep. throwing him a bit, a bit of help. Yeah, um, he, he, he thought that was that was the highlight of his day, going yeah. and hanging out with the German soldiers. But, but, but now, you know, as as, as I said, you know, now, uh, you know, when you hear certainly about the stuff that happened in Africa, about you know, nine year olds, eight year olds, highly valuable prisoners, mm-hmm. because that can be radicalised, and it's all very, very scary now. Mm. Well, it always was. But yeah, but I guess we're we're attuned to it more than we were. Yeah. 
as kids, because um, uh, as a child myself of two people that's suffered great trauma and lost their countries, it's hard not to have that sort of stuff passed down. Mm. And I remember, certainly remember people in my parents' life hiding food, turning the lights off at night, all those kind of behaviours that happened because of their previous experiences in Europe brought them to Australia. We were in Adelaide. Mm. Nothing's going to happen. Mm. Did you notice any of that about your folks? Oh, absolutely. It, more, more economically, you know, the, the, the real restraint and my father didn't believe in debt, so he paid off his house in five years and was, was very anxious about having any outstanding debt on it, even for that period of time. He only bought cars when he could afford to buy them outright. He was very proud of not uh, having credit cards and, and, you know, he, yeah. he was very worried about money all the time because there was so little of it as he was growing up. You know, he used to tell the story about the six brothers having to share one pair of good shoes so they couldn't, two at a time, couldn't go to a function that required wearing shoes. <laughs> so, so someone had to choose who got to wear the shoes <laughs> if they were going to, you know, they certainly never went to weddings or things like that. Yeah. Uh, you know, the mum and dad went, but the kids... Uh, when did you start to notice that your parents... I mean, as you're, when you're a kid, your world is... You think your world is like everybody's world. When did you start to notice that your parents' experience and your life was a little... I mean, you spoke Italian at home? Yeah, I didn't speak English until... <laughs> I didn't speak English until I was about nine. Yeah. Because we, we went to... Uh, uh, Dad took us all back to live in Milan. He bought a bar when I was about uh, four or five. He bought a bar with his brother in Milan because that's what you do. And uh, he wanted us to settle back there because you would know this... Um, firsthand, there is that real sense of dislocation, mm. where do I belong, I don't really belong here, I don't really belong there anymore. So they went through this period, they came in 55 and my sisters are significantly older than me, I've got two older sisters, one's seven years older, one's ten years older and so by the time we went back in say, 75, they were already kind of 15 and 12 and I was only little and um, you know, mum and dad had been here 20 years but didn't really feel at home here. There was a lot of uh, racism against um, Europeans. Uh, back then, obviously, there weren't very many Asians having only just repealed the white Australia policy. Um, but there were, as you know, so many Europeans after the war. We took in something like two million uh, Europeans in that sort of 50s, early 60s period. The population period. was only something like four or five million at the time. Yeah, it was extraordinary. So, But there was significant backlash against people like my parents. And so they didn't feel particularly comfortable here, although they assimilated very well after they thought, you know, better to go back home, but they felt more out of place in Italy when they went back. And my dad, very, um, in, in, a, in an act of incredible prescience, he said, uh, you know, this is no place to raise girls. Uh, so, you know, this was the Berlusconi Mark I era. <laughs> and he didn't think uh, Italy was necessarily going to be the best place. Before the Bunga Bunga? <laughs> well, who would know? It was who probably a bit underground in those oh, days. Well, actually, Lord. no, these were the days when he started his television of, stations. Probably a lot of Bunga Bunga going and on And people then. read the news topless. <laughs> That's <laughs> so, right. <laughs> you know, uh, my life could have turned out. This is, no place, <laughs> this is no place to re raise women. And so I know what's going to be better. 
Late 70s Australia. <laughs> well, <laughs> it's, all, uh, it's all by comparison, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah it is. Yeah, yeah. It is. I have now a 12-year-old girl. And uh, I grew up as one, I do. Right, I'm one of four boys. I went to an all boys school. The only woman in my life was my mum. Really, dad left when I was 11. No, he was still around, but not, uh, you know, that kind of really strong patriarchal mm. figure. Um, so I never really understood at all what the world looked like for a woman. Mm. Uh, and it was uh, thankfully through very patient. Uh, girlfriends and, and later wives, later ex-wives, and now my... What did your mum do for a living? Uh, mum was a doctor mm. and she worked for the Australian Army. And mum being the... Uh, Extraordinary, right? Yeah, being the... After uh, everything she'd been through. Yeah, well, being the survivor or so that she is, mum adopted almost a very um, uh, disconnected uh, way of... What's, no, what's the word? Disassociated way of dealing with the world. Um, and that she was exceedingly good in a crisis because she had nothing she could possibly see would be worse than what she'd already seen. And the military is particularly mm. misogynistic, as we've since discovered. Uh, yes. Imagine what it was like then. It's funny when he talks to her about it now because she was there mm. um, at the hospital uh, working and she's, she says, oh, the things I saw, the things I, you know, I treated boys for. I remember she says um, she came home after, like, the second day she was there working, 85, I think, and she said, none of you ever joined the army. Never, ever joined the army. They own you. Mm. They own you for five years back then. Uh, don't ever do it. Mm. Um, they tell you when to wake up, when to go to sleep, when to shit, when to eat. Don't do it. Um, but she'd also, you know, seen some of the, the hazing rituals and stuff like that and the after effects of such and, yeah, nasty stuff. Mm. Really, mm. really weird workplace culture that there. It's interesting that the that uh, the last time we had a plebiscite, given it's such a hot topic, was on conscription, nineteen sixteen. That was the last time we had a plebiscite. Yeah, yeah. yeah I think it was nineteen sixteen. Not, Not even a referendum. No, no, referendum's different. Yeah, that's what that's what yeah, I mean. Yeah, like yeah, you yeah. think a referendum on a plebiscite? No, no, on something like conscription. I'm sorry, referendum. Sorry, referendum on conscription. No, because they, I mean, of course, the the thing that um, that people are starting to understand more is, you know, what you can, what you can pass through the parliament is anything that's legislative and anything that requires a change in constitution. I guess conscription didn't have a, any kind of mention in the constitution. There was nothing about our constitutional law that needed to change. Yeah. So it's interesting the kinds of questions that get put to the people when you don't necessarily need them to be. So I guess when you were a little older, you'd already seen Italy and you'd seen, obviously still recovering, not 30 years after the, the war ended, and you came, you came back to Australia. Mm. Uh, and I guess by then you're starting to become bilingual and mm, you know, well. going, going to primary school and realising people constantly make fun of my last name. And <laughs> well... Um, Funnily enough, we came back because uh, my father and his brother had a falling out mm -hmm. and uh, um, and so that that was deemed not to be the life for us after, after all. Dad was a very uh, talented cabinet maker and made a lot of our furniture at home and so he came back to uh, to do that but then ended up... Um, ended up taking uh, one and then up to seven stalls at the Victoria Market um, the Queen Victoria Market, which goes strong today too, and he was very well known in the market and, and had a, a terrifically loyal clientele for um, more than 20 years. 
But the the funny thing when you ask about language about language and um, and uh, and being bilingual, when we first got back, I was about eight, I think, and uh, I remember this. You know, you have these sort of um, scant memories when you're young, and I do remember being in the air, airport, inconsolable, coming back to Australia, and and really quite traumatised at my parents not really understanding what was going on, why I was so upset. And what's wrong? And, and I, you know, was sort of madly sobbing that um, the word for language in Italian is lingua tongue and that there was all this conversation about when we came to Australia, we'd be speaking a different tongue. So I had it in my head that at some point before I got to, you know, step foot in my new home, someone, some doctor was going to come and replace my tongue. <laughs> Oh, my God. <laughs> and so, yeah, <laughs> that was my experience of going from the Italian to the English. Right. Uh, fortunately, it wasn't quite so painful, except I do, I do remember in primary school um, for about the first six months, my family laughs that it was the only time in my life I didn't speak very much. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my big brother tells a great story about uh, he caught a cab somewhere after must have been like maybe November 2001 he caught a cab in, in Melbourne with a, uh, a, a Greek Australian cab driver and he said you know the worst thing to be right now in Australia would be Arabic mm. okay but before that the worst thing to be in Australia would be Vietnamese. Mm. Uh, but before that, the worst thing to be in mm-hmm. Australia would have been Italian. And before that, the worst thing to be in Australia was Greek. Mm. So I really feel for, you know, these people now because every time a new one of us came along, he said the best thing that – I think he even said it the wrong way around. Sorry, I said it the wrong way around. He goes, the best thing that ever happened to me as a Greek was that the Italians came. Yeah. The best thing that happened to the Italians was that the Vietnamese came. The best mm-hmm. thing that happened to the Vietnamese was the Lebanese came. The best thing mm-hmm. that happened to the Lebanese was the Sudanese came. Yeah. Um, and, that and we saw that we saw that on display in the parliament, didn't we, with Pauline Hanson's speech? We were being swamped by Asians, and now we're being swamped by Muslims. You know, it's it's amazing what a difference a couple didn't of decades. Even, didn't she even make. drop? You can go back to where you came from last night. Oh, I don't know. I think she did. I wouldn't I think, su- she, yeah. I think without any hint of irony. There did seem to be uh, incredible parallels to the speech she gave yeah. twenty years ago. <laughs> But I think she just in, used a bit of whiteout for a certain word. In your uh, in your job, which and I, I was very lucky to speak with your co- uh, your um, colleague Lee Sales uh, mm-hmm. about a year and a half ago or so, and we talked about the perceived bias of of the ABC. And my take on it was that, you know, time and time again, the ABC has proven to be actually quite centrist. But because it is accused of so many things, because the, 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 the right is so far right, it makes the ABC look like it's lefty, but it's actually, it's actually not. What's, what's your vibe on, on where it stands politically? Oh, look, it's quite amusing that on any political interview I do, uh, if, I, if I chance upon the Twitter feed, which I often try to ignore... Um, you know, you'll get you'll get one lot of people who are passionately convinced that I am an absolute left wing, um, you know, communist, and then you'll get the other mob that'll say I'm an absolute 
coalition stooge and that, you know, I'm a, I'm a um, payout because, I, you know, now we've got, you know, the coalition government that we're all, you know, a sap to the new leadership. And, you know, and I think once I did photograph on my phone one of each on the same night and posted it on Twitter just to, you know, have a laugh. And uh, there's, you know, most people who post these things don't have any sense of irony. But um, I think, you know, uh, uh, of course everybody has their own opinion and journalists have an opinion, but it's our role to, to put that to one side and to prosecute the person sitting in front of us to justify their position. And that's what the audience deserves from us. And that's, you know, they, they, don't, they don't care what we think. And, you know, that's not, it's not our role to inject that. And, you know, I, I, wouldn't even, I wouldn't even consider doing it. And frankly, my political views are not that passionately held anyway. To tell you the truth, but if I'm not mistaken, at the ABC you are held to uh, uh, a level of accountability that journalists elsewhere. Really no, absolutely, aren't. absolutely. And our complaints department is vigorous and comprehensive and annoying in terms of its um, its uh, you know its rigor in in investigating complaints and and accusations of bias and so on. So we're acutely aware that we're closely scrutinised for everything we say and do and, you know, and we don't take that... Resp- I don't take that responsibility lightly and I know that, you know, I mean, it's, 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 it's incumbent on us to, to, to ask the questions of the people sitting in front of us that, that we imagine our viewers want to know the answers to and it's as simple as that, really. When you are living in a world now, though, where everybody has a voice, everybody has a voice, and, the, you know, the right Twitter response written with the right keywords by someone who's got 12 followers mm. could end up getting colossal reach and mm. end up changing the course of the news day. When you are trying to do your job, as you say, to prosecute people in the public eye and try to, you know, help them justify their position with just the itchy trigger fingers of robbing nut jobs on one side and mm. social justice worries on the other. Of which I'm both. Yeah. <laughs> on any given well, day. You're accused of being both. Do you find it difficult? Like, how can I even, like, for example, you know, what our friend Pauline spoke about last night. In our society there is a problem with uh, radicalised people who are, happen to be of, uh, you know, align themselves with the Muslim faith. This is something that is a problem. Is it all Muslims? Absolutely not. Do all Muslims abhor it? Pretty much. Mm. Pretty much every single one of them. Though, how are we going to have this conversation about these people, you know, without being accused of going easy or, you know, I'm now, you know, being abhorrent to an entire quarter of the world's population. Mm. Is it difficult for you to have these conversations? With who? With, with whoever you're sitting in front of, to be able, be able to bring up these sort of questions, to be able to have this kind of dialogue. Mm, no, I don't find it difficult no? at all. Um, I think... Uh, I think, you know, my, as I said, my job is to ask questions. Sometimes I think what's what I find astonishing is that people think because I ask a certain question that that is my view. So when I challenge someone, and invariably what you're doing is you're putting the counterpoint to them uh, to, to have them, uh, uh, you know, really um, show us how... how uh, you know, just justify their position and and 
and argue it, right? And so in order to engage someone in an argument, you need to put the other side to them. And so because we put the other side forward and say, you know, you might have a, a spate where um, coalition MPs and ministers don't come on for a couple of weeks, so you've only got Labor in front of you, and so you have to put the other side to them, which is invariably the coalition standpoint, then all of a sudden you're coming from the, the coalition point of view, and then you'll have a, the Prime Minister or a Minister sitting in front of you and you put the Labor point to them, or points that sound uh, strikingly like those being uh, promulgated by the Labor Party, and you suddenly of that point of view. So I don't, I, I, I hear what you're saying on the issue of uh, radicalisation, but I don't, I don't, I mean, the only time I've ever, and I don't know if this is what you're pointing to, is when I had the guy from his butt to rear in front of me. Um, and, you know, I asked, I did, I did a very typical who, what, where, how and why interview, <laughs> you know, um, to try to understand why a group like that, which... Uh, you know, it's inter the other thing that's interesting about the job that I do is often you don't... Sometimes you get days and weeks to research for an interview and sometimes, as was the case with that particular interview, um, I had an hour before, you know, they just rang and said they were trying to decide who to do an interview with that day and they decided on, you know, everyone had put in the same bid and they decided to go with us and I had an hour's notice, which means do I prep or do I put makeup on? <laughs> you know, so it's like, oh, I have to do both at the same time. So it was back to first principles. What do they say on their website? What's he said in the public domain? There's a lot of conflicting um, positions there. Uh, how can they say they're very tolerant and, and uh, how can they say they abhor what's happening in, in Syria and yet subscribe to Sharia law very strictly, that they want a caliphate in Australia. You know, it all, all didn't seem to make very much sense to me. So I just thought we need to ask really simple questions, you know. Yeah. Uh, and, of course, I got, I got absolutely, um, you know, pilloried for that. But I don't resolve from it at all because... You know, most people in the community are equally confused about these mm. questions, but they have to be they have to be taken on on an individual basis, right? So this guy's clearly got a few screws loose and can't quite, you know, uh, fashion a narrative that makes any, you know, logical um, that, that that is sensible, really. And so, you know, I think. I think it's not in the same way that, as you say, you can't make generalisations about all Muslims are like this or all Jewish people are like this or all Italians are like this. You know, I just think it's, you know, some people are mad whether they're Muslim or Italian or Jewish or Greek or Chinese. <laughs> I don't think it has anything to do with their religion or their race or ethnicity or I just think... You know, and I think it's unfortunate that there is something in Islam that... Um, you know that, that people have decided that this is the 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 this is their justification for some really, you know, horrible behaviour. And I just think it's unfortunate for everyone who, uh, you know, legitimately follows their faith and uh, yeah. finds in it the good. <laughs> well, I get you know the same could be said for different interpretations of Christianity. You know, exactly. As if, as if the Christians or, haven't started wars yeah, over Or, the you know, super, super right-wing um, uh, Hasidic Jews against mm. secular 
Jews, uh, who there's the violence that goes on there. You know, it's it's, it's not too easy to blame a religion or blame yeah, a race yeah, or fully. you know. Do you think that since you started as a cadet in newspapers, right? Mm-hmm. Do you see the ability for public discourse? Has it gotten better? Has it gotten worse? Uh, I think more voices are generally better for public debate, not worse. I think the problem, and I recently had this out with our union, the MEAA, because they... Media Entertainment and Arts Alliance. <laughs> they, I asked them who Haven't they... Haven't paid my dues, sorry. <laughs> I asked them, who, you know, who do they accept as journalists? You know, who, who can sign up and be protected by the MEAA? Who can call themselves a journalist? And the answer was anyone. Huh. So anyone who writes a blog, anyone who writes a tweet can call themselves a journalist and be protected by the union. And I thought that was really kind of odd. And because that would obviously give them some kind of, uh, you know, validity that uh, that puts them at, at level pegging in the eyes of the union, at least, with the rest of us who've, you know, done cadetship, studied at university to do, you know, to have this vocation and so on. Look, there's a lot of people out there who have an opinion, obviously, and there's much there's a greater opportunity for people to voice that opinion, whether Mm. it's social media or blogs and so on. I think at the end, um, everyone's always had an opinion. It's just they haven't had the ability to share it in the way they have now. Well, it's quite quite simply seen by any kind of metric, uh, Mm. be it a a Twitter timeline review or a Facebook likes or, crikey, an election result, Mm. uh, that a, a polarised view shouted loudly mm. gets more ratings, gets more clicks, mm. and, a, and a simplified polarised view mm. shouted loudly, typed in caps, mm. you know, gets more so clicks. angry and Gets loudly. more clicks, <laughs> gets more ratings, gets more advertising revenue. Yeah. Um, do you see that, you know, at one end uh, with commercial television stations and, and particularly online news chasing those metrics, which at the end of the day is putting money in, in the bank and, and, and paying their wages, um, and then using those kind of headlines and therefore driving, I don't know, does it drive politicians and people in the public eye to say things and drive their points home in, in headlines? Do you find that this is reducing our ability to have leaders who can have a nuanced view or accept a change of mind? Uh, I actually think the problem with our politics at the moment, which was borne out in the result, was that leaders can no longer be lazy with their communications. You know, you know, I was talking to John Howard last night about Menzies and he was remarking about Menzies' intense dislike for the media and he could afford to because there wasn't much of it. Yeah. <laughs> so... And, and he was recalling uh, Menzies' resignation and that Menzies uh, fought to not have a press conference and not say anything publicly, but just to kind of announce it in some, you know, five-point the back of the paper. And he may well have got away with that back then. He certainly couldn't now. But I think that means you have to be a very talented orator and not only that, you have to be able to prosecute your argument. And unfortunately, those who are shouting the loudest are getting heard the most. Uh, 
I think it was very interesting that when the when we heard the omnibus bill, uh, you, know, you know, the kind of, um, you know, the bus full of measures <laughs> that are getting finally going through the green light, the person who came out and trumpeted that was Bill Shorten. <laughs> but this was a government measure. So I just think that the way communications among the major parties is handled these days seems a little off that we don't, you know, I think there was great expectation that Malcolm Turnbull was going to be an incredible uh, communicator that he had, you know, he's a barrister, highly accomplished and, you know, he applied his trade, arguing points and winning spectacularly in the courtroom. The fact that he can't win the public seems really interesting and odd to me, but I think therein lies the problem, that you can't coast along um, making that sort of 140-character grab for the nightly news and that be enough. You have to bring the public along and if you have someone that's filling the airways when you're not saying, you know, shocking things about limiting immigration and um, banning Muslims and so on, yeah, you're going to get a headline and you're going to be heard. And it's a challenge, I know, to to counteract that with some more kind of um, measured, sensible, nuanced discussion. But where is that coming from? And that's sort of not there. I think that's what people want. I think all this other noise on Twitter and Facebook and everywhere else, I think it's noise, you know. I think people don't take it that seriously. It might give them a bit of a shock for a minute, but I think people do genuinely enjoy robust debate, not that sort of shouty caps lock nonsense that we see here and there. Are you... Now, bear in mind, I've, I've done a fair bit of work in the building you work in, in the, the ABC building there at Ultimo. It's an extraordinary broadcast facility. I'm going to say it's one of the best in the world. I've been in a lot of them, and it's state-of-the-art. It's magnificent. We are getting our tax dollars worth. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's not that good. We could do with a bit more, you know. No, come not, on, but... <laughs> not that state-of-the-art. Don't be talking us up too much such that we, you know, get another cut yeah, well, to You've got the largest soundstage in Australia in there. Don't forget. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you, but you are in a building full of very smart people. Uh, yes, they're people from all sides of the political spectrum, but they're all very smart people that have come by choice to come and work at the ABC. They didn't choose careers in commercial broadcasting. So you are daily surrounded by this community. Working where I work uh, and seeing the people that I see, I remember when uh, I was doing Idol and I would, you know, it gave me the opportunity to just meet people that I would never, ever, ever meet. Mm. Meet families, you know, entire families of 10 people would come and, and be with their you know, the, the person that was auditioning. And now when I do uh, Breakfast Radio in Brisbane, we voted One Nation back in, up there. Um, you know, I meet these people. I don't know if I can agree with you to say that, you know, as a whole, people don't like that caps lock stuff because they're busy. They've got screaming kids, they've got school fees to pay, they've got a, a new alternator they need to But they to get. don't have someone on the other side of that debate really effectively uh, telling them why it doesn't make sense, why they don't need to. it's That's wrong. Like, share, move on. They see they've got all these likes for this thing from their inner circle of friends. The cycle repeats. Mm. And that's it. Their mind's made up. Look what Barack Obama achieved, right? On, you know, that, that was not a platform of hate and, and anger and 
uh, vilification and division. That was quite the opposite. And he cut through. I love him. I think it can be done. But promising boundless hope and change is dangerous. Yeah, of course. Because no we matter can what see you that. deliver, it's not, an, it's yeah. not hope and, and change. And, of course, that, that goes somewhat to explain the rise of Donald Trump, right? Right, which does lead me to ask, and I was, I was hoping we could talk about this. In, I'd always, I've always loved to put together a toolkit for um, basically deciphering the news cycle. All right, mm. and and we see it sometimes after an emergency. A or toolkit after... for for the public. Yes, <laughs> a toolkit for the public to decipher the news cycle. Like when you see Tony sitting down on a couch with Pauline, you need a wrench to sort of get one out of there, out of your toolkit. You know, but exactly. Or when you see, um, you know, when when you see a, a sit down interview uh, with someone. Uh, that they managed to find that day. Like, what are some things that people need to understand about how news is created and how the news cycle works that can help people kind of understand what's going on and what they're seeing? Look, what's going on, I I think, you know, again, I think John Howard made a really good point about this. So he was obviously 20 years ago when she stood up the first time for her maiden speech and told um, the nation we were being swamped by Asians. Well, John just took their guns off them. Of course they were mad. (laughs) So... um, so John Howard was the Prime Minister. He now, on reflection, says the wrong thing to do is to marginalise her and her, her followers, you know, to sort of criticise them and attack them because it emboldens them, right? A bit like Donald Trump. Um, so instead, the much harder thing to do is to fight back with, with that kind of intellectual argument that says, you know, all the obvious stuff about banning Muslim immigration isn't, what's that going to do? I mean, you know, you get nutbags that are Christians and nutbags that are from every other race and religion. I mean, that's not, it's about trying to, uh, trying to get to the heart of the problem rather than just sort of, um, you know, kind of um, pick on one particular group. And so I think it's right that, that, that when you talk about toolkits, I don't think it's, I don't think it's right to kind of just come out and criticise for, critis- for, 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 for the sake of, of another equal headline that kind of has the um, cap lock situation. I think it's better to, to try somehow to count, to be better in the, the kind of um, boxing ring of intellectual discussion rather than, you know, the kind of physical barbs and, you know, I, I don't think... And I think that's difficult because we don't have the people, I don't think at the moment, who are providing that. And so I, I spoke to a group of people the other day about about the election and amused on, you know, what happened and why and what's going on with Malcolm Turnbull. And someone said, you know, why does everyone in the media all... Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question and take advantage of 30% off? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. 
Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com to get 30% off. Select lab-grown diamonds. That's BlueNile.com for 30% off lab-grown diamonds. BlueNile.com. Always talk about personalities rather than policies. And I, it was a good question. And I said, well, you know, at the moment, it's interesting, isn't it, that the conversation is about whether we're getting the real Malcolm we thought we were getting when obviously opinion polls had him at 60% popularity, you know, um, approval rating and now he's sort of in the 30s or, or wherever he is. And, you know, someone who once would never have gone to a plebiscite, you know, would have just waved through same-sex marriage. Obviously, he's got the biggest um, gay vote of any... That's the irony, right? He's where we're 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 in his electorate right now, uh, and it's the biggest gay uh, population in the country. He would have waved that through someone who lost his job because he was so passionately held on on uh, putting a price on carbon through an emissions trading scheme. Someone who um, believed very strongly in um, in the rights of refugees and, you know, had all these very progressive points of view who comes to power as PM and neglects to mention any of those things anymore and then scratches his head as to why people have abandoned him in droves. Um, And then, but to understand that as someone who reports on this and speaks to people often, ministers and uh, opposition members of the front bench and so on. I mean, it's quite obvious that, and and it's true, that, that he signed a pact with the right wing of his party, that he wouldn't do those things and that he would leave the door open for a change to the Racial Discrimination Act that would allow people to insult and offend others on the grounds of race because, of course, that's obviously quite a pressing issue for Australians right now. Uh, and all these things, I mean, the lengths that Malcolm Turnbull has gone to to become Prime Minister, I wonder in the end whether he'll think it was worth it. Mm. Uh, and and so personality does matter and it just sort of circles me back to the point about leadership and conversation. How do you then address the public in a meaningful, incredible way when you've had to compromise so much of your previous value set to get the job? Mm. So... Pauline Hanson on the other side of that coin hasn't changed her position in 20 years. So there's some respect in the community she went for to that. For Indeed. <laughs> and like him or loathe him, John Howard is a conviction politician. You always knew where he stood. And there was a stark reminder of that when I interviewed him that on the issue of women, he doesn't believe in quotas and, and that kind of affirmative action. He doesn't you know, he doesn't think we ought to legislate to make things move more quickly for women. And he, he's intractably opposed. You're not going to get him to change his mind. And, you know, I think we expect a little bit of give from our politicians, but we do respect someone who has a vision f- mm. for... And he he held very firm on middle-class welfare. He had a bit of a stab at Joe Hockey's age of entitlement um, moan. And we respect politicians who stand their ground, whether we agree with them or not. And I think that's what you saw with John Howard and I think that's why we're, you know, as a population kind of rejecting 
Malcolm Turnbull. Five Prime Ministers in three years doesn't help. Yeah, that's right. And in fact, we've had more changes of Prime Minister in the last decade than we've had since the first 10 years of Federation. There's, uh, I've certainly heard this talked about in American politics, that there's two schools of thought. You become President of the US and then you do what you want, or you become President of the US, as Bill Hicks would say, you get led into a room, the cigar smoke down to about <laughs> chin level, you sit down, a screen comes down out of the ceiling, and there's a shot of the JFK assassination from an angle you've never seen before. <laughs> the screen goes back up and says, someone says, any questions? <laughs> so are you of the belief, now, and, and this is particularly with Malcolm, because as someone who's, I'm not a Liberal supporter, but because I think I'm in the, I think I'm... Who do you support? <laughs> I think I, I stand on the left-hand side leaning on the centre. Mm-hmm. I would say that's about where I am, all right? I, I, look, I did your fabulous... Um, vote compass. Vote compass. I thought it was brilliant. Mm. I took screenshots of it six weeks apart and it was fascinating how I shifted. I was mm. absolutely... I, I did not realise how far to the centre I was uh, of the Greens, um, nor did I realise how far more progressive I was than Labor. Uh, which was wild. Mm. I was like, wow, that's really interesting. You know, mm. I wonder if it's what's changed in my life since I, you know, it's, it's various changes I made in my personal life over the last six or seven years or, you know, that I've been around the world and I've seen a few different things. I don't know. Uh, but I think I am in the kind of bell curve in the middle pretty mm-hmm. much mm-hmm. as most of Australia is mm. and all it would take is someone who does what they say they're going to do and I'll feel a bit better about them not really representing me 100%. I was like, well, I can, I can see where they're coming from. I'm with it. Now, yeah. I kind of think that, do you think that in this country you become Prime Minister and then you do what you want or you become Prime Minister and then you're briefed? And someone says, this is why the lights are on. This is why uh, we're safe. I think it's Here's more, what you're going to do. I think it's more nuanced than that. Yeah? As we're seeing with, with uh, Mr Turnbull. I think the problem is... Or, or the problem or, or, or the beauty of politics is there is no part, there's no homogenous sort of party that you get a Labor Party where, you know, your however many members of your parliamentary party all think the same way, nor do you get a Liberal Party or a National Party for that matter or, you know, let alone a coalition where everyone thinks the same way. I mean, look at Dean Smith who's, uh, you know, who was the first openly gay uh, Liberal Party member who came out this week, you know, viciously opposed to the plebiscite. He called it an abhorrent abhorrent idea because democracy should be allowed to to play as it should in the parliament. Um, You know, and then on the other side, then you have Cory Bernardi. You know, you've got diametrically opposed politicians who sit together in the parliament. And so you're always going to have that here. I don't know what's going on in the United States. Don't get me started there. But so so I think, you know, it's not that simple yeah. as Malcolm Turnbull is finding. But I do think, again, you need a leader who can bring you to their way of thinking. Yeah. I think compromise is inevitable. But... I think when you have a leader who can convince everyone to their point of view, I think that's the special quality that defines, that, that, that separates prime ministers, mm. the really great ones, to the mediocre ones. I think it's those who can really, rather than the party dominating your thoughts. Yeah, that does bother me a little that you, you vote. You kind of yeah. having a greater influence on the party than the party has 
on you. I yeah, think that you, probably... you vote for this bloke who goes on the ads and says, I'll do this and I'll do that and jobs, growth, whatever the other thing you said, jobs and growth, jobs and growth, jobs and growth. I think that was it. Yeah, and then he gets in and then the people in the party who are, you know, I've talked about this, sat at this table a bunch of times and I've talked about the, you know, this career that starts when you're in the, you know, the teen liberals and then the, the mm. uni liberals and then mm. you never know anyone outside of the party. Same with Labor. Mm. Um, and then you're inside this room with white men, because mm. all, that's all there is there, um, who have, you know, made all these decisions to help each other stay where they are and do you know any different by then? Are you willing to then go against these people who ha- you owe so many favours to through the course of your life? Mm. You know, are you then able to turn around and say to them, look, I'm Prime Minister now, no, or do you realise that we've stabbed that many people in the back in the past, we'll do it to you in a blink? And the other problem we have in our politics in particular is the the cohort in Canberra now, there aren't too many who've had experiences outside politics being staffers and working their way up through those ranks uh, or being lawyers. Mm-hmm. So almost bar none, they're lawyers and staffers. So does that give us the great breadth of opinion and experience that we might like from our representatives? They're supposed to represent us, right? Mm. Um, So I think that's a problem too, uh, being a little disconnected from reality. And I I, I, I do think it's better if a politician hasn't just been a politician Mm. and that they've actually had some other experiences in life outside the trade, trade union movement or... Um, the lawyery uh, yeah. path, yeah. Uh, or the staffer path. I think yeah. I think we have a very kind of narrow that can create a very narrow view. And again, that's why we thought Malcolm might be a little different because yeah. he had an extensive experience in the media and yeah. in the courtroom as a barrister. And you know, it's um, but. Uh, you know, f- from your point earlier about the media, I don't think it's the media's fault. There's more of it. We talked about, you know, Menzies not having to front up because yeah. there weren't that many vehicles that made it necessary. The fact that it is now so necessary means more than ever you have to be an exquisite communicator. Mm. And if you're not, you suffer. But when men- let's be fair, though, when Menzies was in power, it was a very tight system. The dollar was regulated. Trade was regulated. Everything was... He had a finger in every, he told, you know, the sun rises this time, the sun sets at this time. Had, there was a marriage bar. He the owned, minute a woman got married, she wasn't allowed to work anymore in the public service. <laughs> so let's go there. I am, as I mentioned earlier, now about to officially become a stepfather to a, a 12-year-old girl and I see the world that is available to her and it freaking bothers me, all right? it bothers, Which bit bothers you? Which bit bothers me? That just by being a woman, she'll be paid less. Mm. That just by being a woman, she won't be taken uh, on merit. That uh, she won't, she can't walk the dog at night. You know, Mm. she's taller than you, Mm. but she can't walk the dog at night here. You know, that she is unsafe to walk a dog after the sun sets. Mm. Whereas a man or a boy, there's a teenage boy that lives downstairs in our apartment block, they you know, went to primary school together, who walks their dog at night all the time. It's funny because Catherine McGregor, you know, who um, is the transgender former um, polit- political speech writer and, and military, um, very decorated military, ex-military, she was saying that um, the, one of the first things she noticed, because she's a keen runner, that when she ran as a man, 
never occurred to her that she was at risk. And when she started running through parks as a woman, she won't do it at night anymore. So it's yeah. amazing, right? When you look at the world that's available to your daughter, she's about six years away from entering the workforce, maybe a little less if she wants to get a, a part-time mm. job while she's studying. What would you hope is different by the time she gets there? I don't think much is going to be di- I say this a lot, right? Uh, so I've got an eight-year-old girl as well and a 10-year-old boy. And I don't, I don't hold a lot of hope that, that in that short space of time very much will be different. Uh, because we need a, a wholesale shift in attitudes that I'm not seeing in Australia. We certainly see it in the Nordic countries because policymakers have made it thus, have really given the issue a priority because uh, John Howard's natural process of getting there because he's uh, articulated how much he opposes quotas, his natural process of getting there clearly doesn't work. And just to to demonstrate that through the figures, uh, you know, in Australia, we have about 20% of parliamentarians are women. Um, actually, uh, after the last election, we've got less than we've ever had. Uh, in um, at boardroom level, it's about 10%. CEO level in the top ASX 200, it's under 5%. Even in the charitable sector, the leaders in the charitable sector, it's about 20%. So we're not making gains anywhere. And it's those leadership positions that matter because that can force a cultural shift, right? So one of the most interesting quotes uh, I ever heard, when I was in Europe as the correspondent for the ABC... Uh, I arrived in 2008, which was uh, terrific because in 2004, Norway introduced uh, quotas on boards such that 40% of your board had to be female. You had four years to get there, so by 2008. And those who didn't get there, who were publicly listed, uh, were fined quite substantially. So you couldn't go to your shareholders and say, sorry, we're going to cop the million-dollar fine or whatever. You know, there would have been mutiny. So they actually had to get there. And because they were publicly listed, it couldn't be tokenism. They had to choose quality candidates. They had to further the interests of the company. So at the end of the four years, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty certain no one got fined. And I interviewed the parliamentarian, the man, who four years earlier fought tooth and nail to oppose this legislation. He went around the country arguing against it and so on. I interviewed him and he'd done a 180. He was now the chief proponent of quotas. And I said, what made you change your mind? And he said, well, what I didn't understand, and there was a lot I didn't understand before embarking on this project, he said that I had no concept of how chairmen, chairmen, because in the main they were men, how they chose their board members He said they went to their local golf club, their tennis club, their their poker group, their, you know, their dinner party uh, cohort. So he said when they were forced to look outside their reference, uh, their circle of friends and so on, my golly, they found talent. It was everywhere. 
you know, they 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 were forced to look and make the appropriate um, inquiries and they found incredible women. And so what's quite hilarious is that when you go to the EU now, the, the general firm all over Europe has representation of Norwegian women because someone else did the hard yards and looked for them. But if you don't look, you don't find, right? Right. And so when they were forced to look for them, they were easily found. And that's that, I think, is the most compelling argument. The, the unconscious bias thing is choosing people who look and feel like, you know, they have the same attitudes that you have. And it's the default that we all go for whatever we're doing, you know. I mean, and this is why I think, and I've thought about this, a lot of friend of mine has a manny, you know, the male nanny. And, uh, you know, some people are like, ooh. And, you, you know, the thing is that women have traditionally chosen the nanny and they've chosen women because they look like them. They nurture like them. And so that's what they're comfortable with. And that, to me, is going to be the next big cultural change. We're making it easier for women to enter the workforce and to stay there. We need to make it easier and more acceptable for men to exit the workforce and be the carers and the nurturers. Because John Howard is right in one sense when he spoke to the press club last week and said that he said the Liberal Party was never going to get 50-50 representation, A, because he doesn't believe in quotas, and B, because he said women are always going to be the carers and that will limit their capacity at work. I don't agree that we're always going to be the carers. In my situation, my husband is the main carer. And so that is going to have to become as accepted as the female carer. And it's not. Things, you know, people... The mummies were mean to my husband in the playground. <laughs> you know, they were kind of looking sideways. Nothing makes me more mad. Oh, you're babysitting today? No, I'm fucking parenting. <laughs> you know, this is not... I made this child. I am parenting this child. I'm not babysitting. Well, that's right. So, so men are facing the same obstacles yeah. in the playground and in the school ground. Mm. But the one that gets me is when they want to give my husband an order of Australia because he packed the lunches and made a cake for the cake stall. No one gives me great praise when I <laughs> bake a cake and that's no reflection of my baking skills. But, you know, so it, it drives me to distraction that we haven't approached that side of the ledger. Yeah. We've got one side sorted. You know, women are, are making great leaps forward but we're being held back by the fact that we're trying to do it all still. So we're trying to juggle the housework and the child caring and the caring for older parents and, and so on, um, while the way men work hasn't really ch doesn't really change when they have children, right? So they are still considered as reliable and so on because nothing much changes in their lives when a baby comes along. They might take one or two weeks. The best... The best example of legislative change that has really forced cultural uh, shifts has been in Iceland as well. They, again, all these, these very progressive Nordic countries. So Iceland introduced a system of parental leave that was nine months. Three months has to be taken by the woman. Three months has to be taken by the man. It's 100% of his salary, right? So wow. it's financially bonkers to not take it, yeah. right? 
And so three months by the woman, three months must be taken by the man, and that other three months you can divide as you like. And the entire nine months can be taken within the first eight years of a child's life whenever you like. So you could take it together and go on a big holiday. But, you know, equally you can do it in the first year and avoid childcare for as long as you can. Denmark, I think, gives parental leave until 15 months. So you don't even have to think about childcare until they're walking and they're Mm. a little more, um, you know, robust because people are very uh, about leaving a little baby to the care of others, right? We want to be able to juggle it between mum and dad, but we don't want all that responsibility to rest with mum because she's got a lot of, you know, going on if she, you know, 67% of graduates now are female. Right, so something's going on. Why is that not represented? Why, yeah. why yeah. by the time we get to CEO level, there's less than 5%. Yeah. It's, it's because women are trying to do too much, right? So they, in the end, of course, if you have to make a decision between your family and your work, you're going to choose your family, but that shouldn't be a decision that we have to make. It should be as acceptable for men to, to take that step back to lean out. So if you can't cha- if you can't change the system that your daughter is going to go and work into, what can you pr- what would you want to instill in your daughter so that she's uh, as prepared as possible? Oh, look, I think I think we're okay because you can't be what you can't see, right? So in my family, um, my husband's there when they get home from school, and he you know gives them afternoon tea and makes their dinner and you know, changes the bed when they wet the bed and, you know, if if the kids are sick, he has to, you know, big ups to my husband because he uh, was in television and had a massive career change because it wasn't good for our family. He was working for 60 minutes and travelling the globe for six weeks at a time and there I was working nights and so none of us, neither of us were seeing the kids, which was not a healthy uh, sort of family environment. So he made the very bold decision to leave the industry entirely, which you know is a very difficult step to make because let's face it, we're pretty unemployable outside our industry. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so, um, so he's become a carpenter and he's doing an apprenticeship at the ripe age of 46. Fantastic. And when he did labouring for a little while and, and when... Um, when time came for them to employ him, you know, full time as, you know, and he's there in all the TAFE ads, you know, this older, older apprentice. And he put it up front when he went for the chat with the two 30-year-olds who owned the company. And he said, uh, listen, guys, uh, I'm the main carer, so sometimes I'm going to be late. Sometimes I'm going to have to leave early when I have a sick child, you know, this, that and the other. And, and you know, um, full credit to them. It's happened often that he's had to just say, look, got a sick kid, got to run. And they they suck it up in the main. <laughs> They're not always happy about it, but they, they get it now. And it's yeah. great because one of them's just about to have a baby. So he's understanding that, you know, and it's it's those sorts of traditionally testosterone fueled environments that have to... Um, yeah. you know, have to change as much as corporate Australia has to change, right? So so those blokes on the building side have to know that dad has responsibilities mm. in the same way that those corporates need to recognise that the woman is as, you know, talented and qualified as the man for that job. I wish you could have sat around this table last night. It actually extends. Your father would have loved it. Uh, <laughs> uh, but there was ten, ten blokes sitting around this table last night and... Uh, 
pretty much all of them uh, they take their dad responsibilities very, very, very seriously. And I learn what I can from them, but I'm on point in that I kind of have the oldest one now. Right, mm. they've all got young, young so I think. You leapfrog them. Yeah, yeah. So w- w- what do I need to know about uh, raising, raising a girl? Um, being a good role model. Because they say that, um, they say girls end up choosing partners that bear some resemblance to their father or father figure. So, you know, be a great role model, I would say, and be someone that you would want her to... Um, to respect, you know, someone you'd want her to end up with, the kind of values you would want her to look for in a partner, I think. Yeah, because that's, that's her reference, right? No, and in the same way that I'm thrilled that my son looks at my husband and knows. And, and we've, but look, we all default to our traditional roles, right? So, so my son is so lazy, getting him to do housework, sometimes my 12-year-old will just go, oh, I'll do it. And I'll say, no, you won't. He'll do it, <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. And they do, they can sometimes, you know, the girls can sometimes just instinctively want to do the, you know, pick up the load of, of housework and so on. So sometimes I quite deliberately, when the girls are watching TV or, you know, doing nothing, will ask my son to fold the laundry, you know, go and um, unpack the dishwasher or whatever and he'll stomp and get angry about it, whatever. But, I, you know, I have to be fair and sometimes make him do stuff when the girls are relaxing and not and not make him think he has more right to, to kind of, um, you know, uh, sort of slacken off. It is it's quite – she's grown a foot in the time I've known her. She's gone from a little girl to she's, you know, on the, you know, the absolute edge of, you yeah, know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, Is she in grade six or? Uh, she's grade seven, first year of high school. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. She's taller than Audrey now. She's yeah, you know, right. 172 centimetres and she's strong and she wants to wrestle all the time. And What was the difference between, like, what's been, was it a big leap to go from primary, because that's what I'm going to go through. We're going to go deal. through and she's going to high school next year. Big deal because, um you know, as you surely remember, you go from the oldest kids who suddenly mm. you're a child again, mm. and it's very weird. Um, for her, the biggest deal was if I was a teacher, I remember the, I went to parent-teacher night. That was awesome. I was secretly screaming with excitement. <laughs> but what I really got was it was such a challenge as a teacher to deal with kids that have come to you from every different kind of educational background. So you're trying to, at the same time, occupy the minds of those who are as sharp as tax and know everything you're already going to teach them and those who basically are living with a grade five education and grade six might have even passed them by. Like they may have been in a composite class, which often happens. They become in a five, six class, for example. Mm. And if they're in a composite class, they end up doing two lots of grade five work, they never do grade six work. And then suddenly they turn up in grade seven. Mm. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, pretty, it's, it's, it's pretty intense. And of course now she's being exposed to um, teenage girls and all that sort of shit. The older girls are so weird and, you, you know, we have to kind of explain things and, mm. and, and talk about things like that. And I think we were in the car the other night. She goes, why would Isis want a bomb Bondi? <laughs> and I'm like, oh, what do you mean? She goes, the girls at school were saying don't go home because the Isis are going to bomb Bondi. I'm like... Can I ask you a question? Yeah. How, do you watch The Bachelor with your daughter? Oh, yeah, she's... Hilarious, and 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 what do you say to her about that? 
Um, she, about all these girls vying for a guy. She picks it apart completely. What's really wonderful, and you can look at me with all kinds of proper journalistic cynicism <laughs> that you like, what's really wonderful is I've now watched uh, Tim and Anna, ultimately Blake and Louise, Sam and Sash, Sam and um, uh, Schnazana, and uh, one other that I can't mention, but in 12 hours we'll know, legitimately actually properly fall in love. And it's really nice watching not only her make a, a, a shift within herself and go, what was it about all my... Because ultimately everybody's single when they show up for one reason or another. Um, watching the, 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 the lady in the relationship go, what have I got to figure out about myself that has kept me single this whole time? But more importantly, what's really great is watching the man go, here I am, this, you know, big bucket of awesome, you know, I've got muscles, I've got a career. Like I'm, how awesome I'm, do they think they are? They've got these 20-something girls Wait till you see Bachelorette. Oh, my God. Anyway, for some reason or another, they are single. You know, these guys who are beautiful, very successful, but somehow they're single and they... How do you recruit them? They come to us. They come to us. But I've watched all of these men now, with it, except for Blake, um, but, you know, I don't have to talk about that. We all saw it happen. I've watched every one of them ask themselves a question, why is it that all my relationships in the past haven't worked out and ultimately take this leap and jump out of kind of what's commonly, you know, the, the man-child, this kind of boy grown up playing with jet skis kind of, you know, mm. grown man and a, a, a young boy in a grown man's body and go, actually, no, I have to man up and, and do this. What's interesting about watching such a show with, with Gigi is that she will sit there on the couch with me and, and she will, she'll go, that's not a very nice thing to say to that girl. She's just, you know, she'll, she will morally pull apart when the girls are being mean to each other and um, it's, it's, it's really fascinating watching it, watching it with her. Um, every one of these women came to us it's not like we're doing some sort of secret government experiment. Mm. We, are host, we are making a show called The Bachelor. You come to us and the agreement, I guess, would say was that you are trading your emotional reactions as currency. Mm. Okay, and that's what the television, that's where the television's made. Mm. Because we're filming those emotional reactions. And I'm going to use the word, that emotional journey is what people, people watch. Oh, I do a double journey tonight in the finale. <laughs> I drop it in the intro. I drop a double journey, and oh, it's so good. I even get a Highlander line in tonight. I say there can be only one. <laughs> oh yeah, it's brilliant. I try and get as many of you those. You look kind so of... serious. You didn't get a rose. Oh, it's great, but you've got to remember these people. As silly as it may seem, I see it all happen. They legitimately, they really, truly, really fall in love. But it's and, kind of weird to me that so they anyway, all sign so I'm, up. I'm, I'm grave Sorry. in voice mm. because there's a it's beautiful, terrible. fascinating, mm. educated, smart, lovely lady in a very pretty dress crying in front of me. Mm. And I have to, as gently as possible, go in there with the funeral director voice and say, it's, it's time to go. We have another one at 11. <laughs> you know, I have to, <laughs> you know. Oh. That's that's, yeah. that's that's what I've got to do, mm. and that's that's my job, and and I treat it very very seriously because we are asking those women to 
have their emotional reactions for our entertainment. I can ask you one more question about it. Go, whatever um, you want. So, so do these women, what do they know about the guy? Because like, maybe once they get to know him, they don't actually like him. And they walk out, which is what happened a few times this year. Mm. Uh, fantastically on the first night, Vintaya mm. just went, nah, nah. I'm <laughs> out of here. <laughs> Are the guys different to the girls, or what's yeah. the difference with the? Are they just? Are they more driven by the competition than by falling in love? We're making a television show, okay? So it's very well cast. Sometimes, uh, as with any of these kind of shows, like Survivor is a perfect example because I'm I can talk about Survivor like this because it's a, it's really really obvious in Survivor that there are some people who are in the Survivor tribes deliberately because they may not be that exciting themselves but they will make one other person have reactions they otherwise would not show okay and those are the reactions and those are the you know we're putting that person out of their comfort zone by allowing them to be in mm. the same space as this person so while this while we may not see this one the first person last very long what they're going to give us is making the other person i can't believe i'm stuck on an island with blur <laughs> you know it's like putting the white well, supremacists actually, with the you know it's it's yeah explosive fantastic yeah. and and we watch Survivor's the only show we let the kids watch. How great is it? Because it's so good for strategy and totally. politics. And yeah. A girlfriend of mine was watching it um, religiously with her sons, the American one, and so when the Australian one started, I thought, oh, yeah, we should do this because she said it taught the boys so many great lessons about getting on with people that you don't otherwise like and strategizing and how bonkers was Andrew? Fantastic, hilarious. My kids were texting me at work, going, "Oh, you'll never believe who got voted off!" Yay! I wonder <laughs> if he is like. To me, I mean, I'm not educated in this realm. I'm purely diagnosing on the things I've read online. Mm. But I'm like, that might be what a sociopath looks like. Mm. Completely driven by ego. No concept whatsoever of others' emotions. Mm. Believing you're in control of every single situation. Yeah. Um, no self-awareness. None. I'm really useless in all the challenges, but they're gonna, there's no way they're going to vote me out I'm because I'm awesome. <laughs> I'm in control. I'm the puppet master. I'm a Ferrari. They're a Hyundai XL. You know? <laughs> but it's great. So well cast. Yeah, it's yeah, really well cast. So uh, what's, what's always fascinating about Bachelorette is aside from one or two, they're all men that I would never, ever meet. They're the kind of guys that I just don't hang out with. Mm. They're just not. Um, Why? Because I'm not really that into gym mm-hmm. or finance mm-hmm. or real estate. Mm. <laughs> yeah, got it. Watching the guys that come on it is watching the way they treat each other and talk to each other is um, also very interesting because unlike with the women, with the men, there's only so far they can go with verbal um, sparring until the threat of physical violence becomes quite credible. Yeah, right. All right. There's only so many things you can say to a man. As a guy, you're like, if I, take, if I say one more thing, mm. I'm going to get hit mm. and it's going to hurt. Mm. But the ladies... But at least it's then over and done with, right? Mm, not anymore. Blokes don't fight like they used to. Blokes are weird now. Blokes stomp on people when they're down now. UFC's taught men very, very weird things about fighting. It's, it's interesting because this is a conversation we have at home about how, so our son was being bullied a bit at school mm. and my husband's reaction was to say, well, 
you know, I don't want you to throw the first punch, but if someone punches you, you've got to punch them back and make it count. I kind of could not believe <laughs> what I was hearing, but increasingly I hear a lot of blokes that, that agree that's what they should say to their sons and I'm not, I'm not a fan of that attitude at all. Mm. I, would, I've, I have never been in a fight in my life. I hit one person once because he was bullying so much. He was bullying me so much. Mm. I was just... But did he bully you anymore after that? Nope. Never yeah, touched see, me again. so there you go. Never so touched mate, me again. I don't know. It was the first time I realised that, oh, when you hit people, your knuckles split open and your hand bleeds, oh. mm. which I didn't know because you never see that in the movies. But it's weird, right? Girls um, don't have... Girls don't but end we, fights like that. We interviewed a, uh, a beastly MMA fighter who more and more are these college-educated kind of almost mathematicians of physics and fulcrums and and dynamics and strategy that, you know, they're these real kind of warrior poet kind of guys with the odd exception of, Mm. you know, your angry man. Um, But Abby, who I work with, said, I want to get my kid into, um, you know, some sort of martial art Mm. because I I think he needs a discipline. And this man is an American. And so he said, look, without a doubt, I would tell your kid uh, jujitsu. There's no animal in the wild that uses their appendages as a projectile. All predators in the wild grapple. Mm. Everything that eats something else grapples with it. Mm. All right? So the other great thing about jiu-jitsu is that it never involves you hitting someone. It only ever involves you using their energy against them and they have the option to tap out. So if there's any kind of investigation into you know, oh, this MMA fighter's son hit me, you know, we'll guess who they're going to go with. But if it's like, oh, this bloke threw a punch, the MMA fighter's son caught his punch, put him to the ground and then held him in a lock until the teacher arrived, mm. you know, who's the bully? Yeah, who's yeah, going to walk right. away? So th- if, if anything, um, that's what I would say to, mm. to, to a son. And I, in many ways I wish that as a kid we learned taekwondo, which is a Korean one, mm. but I wish that I'd learned something like Aikido mm. or something like that. Um, because it's very much more in alignment with, uh, remember those, those classic karate kid lines, best way uh, to win a fight is not to be there. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Which is the way that I always fought. But you, it's funny, isn't it? Because we talked earlier about uh, being apprehensive about daughters walking dogs at night, yeah. but if they had some sort of martial arts experience, perhaps uh, there's something to be said for that. I would absolutely hope that, Gigi would be well-trained enough to read a situation and be completely aware of her surroundings. And this is the worst thing, that she has to gives me the shits. Yeah, yeah. But that she is aware of her situation or realises that uh, she's at a house party and, you know, things are getting a bit weird. There's a weird vibe in the air. It might be time to go. Mm. It might be time to leave. I'm yeah, leaving. Yeah, I'm yeah. leaving now. Exactly. Before and then later the next day or seeing on Snapchat later that night, oh, someone went through a window mm. at the party that I left 20 minutes ago. Mm. Good call. Mm. Good fold. Mm. Folded my hand, got the hell out of there. And that's what I would want to teach her more is to read a situation and just get out before anything happens mm. rather than having to defend herself. I would want that so much more. To give yeah. her that awareness, to give that, that situation Were you awareness. that kid that left early? I was the boy that wondered why the girls were leaving the party. <laughs> yeah. I'm sober now. Um, and the way I used to behave at... I never started fights or mm. never whatever, but I was 
manic is the only way I could describe mm. it. I was just weird and and loud and thankfully never really dangerous, but unpredictable. It's often a common trait, though, of youth and, you know, a lot any, of people are crazy in their anytime, early I, I, 20s. And I'm of a firm belief that any time that there's more than three men and alcohol involved, the collective intelligence of those three men um, decreases by the power of however many men they've become. Mm. So if, it's, if there's one bloke has 100 IQ, let's just say because it's an easy number, and there's three of them, collectively they have an IQ of about 30. And if oh, you right. happen to be in, you know, f- for example, the office of the Prime Minister and there's a glass coffee table involved or something. Yeah. You see, I was going to say that you were going to ask, you were asking, I don't know how Malcolm can get people over the line, I was going to say, he can hardly go door to door and flip tables, can he? Did you see that? It was my favourite thing that happened last year on Twitter, uh, House of Cards, the, the, the Twitter account for House of Cards tweets as Frank Underwood. Yeah. Sometimes it goes, you know, F, yeah. hashtag F, F U, Frank yeah. Underwood. Yeah, yeah. And <laughs> Which is just the best. It was so brilliant. So I have 700,000 followers, House of Cards, brilliant, brilliant show. Uh, I personally, I, I know the, the guy who is their advisor as to how things actually worked mm. in very, very close. His name's Jay and uh, I met him. He's a lovely guy. Um, so let's just say they get things fairly right when it comes to nuance. Mm. Uh they tweeted, uh, it was when Malcolm, oh, he did something last year, I can't remember what it was about. You'll know, but I can't remember what it was about. He goes, oh, well played at PM Turnbull. <coughs> if you don't like the way the table is set, flip the table for stop. <laughs> brilliant. Yeah, 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 so yeah, yeah. Probably the leadership. Yeah, I think it was something along <laughs> I think it was something along those lines. Yeah, I was yeah. thinking along those, something along those lines. Right, now, I've got to let you go, but um, I don't think you're interviewing John Howard today, but what's the rest of your day look like? So you're, you're, it's now coming on, what time is it? Oh, it's uh, my, my watch stopped this morning. Oh. <laughs> but I can good. tell you I'm having a mummy day. I'm actually it's, it's not a, going into the office today. It's 11 a.m.? Oh, you're not doing the show tonight? I'm not doing the show tonight. Oh. No. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, cool. Thanks for making it. Yeah, So say if this welcome. were a show day. If it was a show day, I probably wouldn't be here. No? <laughs> um, a show day, you know, starts very early for me because I'm reading papers and uh. listening to Radio National and we have a conference call at uh, 9.30 to decide which direction we'll go in for interviews. Uh, sometimes we'll already have a feature interview locked in. Uh, and then for the rest of the day, it's researching. I sort of am quite obsessive about my research and so I tend to, you know, read all day and speak to people. If it's political, I'll speak to people on the other side of the divide or people close to them and yeah. other people and other vested interests and so on. And uh, my day's really busy. Even if you don't use it all, it's 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 a really yeah. safe feeling going into an interview with oh, just yeah. all the ammo in your belt. Absolutely. Even yeah. if they go in another direction completely, yeah. you're able to see the context of where they go mm. and it allows you to then make decisions. Otherwise, Correct. I can't deal with other people doing my research. Oh, Never no. have. No. People, no. Are, you know, oh, I've written some questions for you. Yeah, but... I haven't read the articles that you read to get those questions and there's probably something in there that I want to know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. So, I've got to go and find um, a a dog onesie for my son's play. He's got to be a dog and I've got to uh, uh, do some uh, organising for my daughter's Holy Communion on Sunday. How Oh, (laughs) how very fabulous. (laughs) So, 
you know, I've got a few things to do today. Oh, so there's a party at yours on Sunday then? No, we're doing it out, but... I think I had an after party of mine for my communion. Yeah, I had the after parties for the other two, but the little one, we're going to a restaurant because can't yeah. do it. <laughs> how, do, how times have changed. You know, I remember my parents were very much into that sort of thing, but, like, it was very different. I was about 11 when I was like, mm, but... Yeah, no, I've, uh, I've got to get my son a pair of trousers because he won't wear anything but shorts. So I've said to him on Sunday he has to wear long pants. <laughs> so that's a battle I'm going to have to Will fight today. Will there be bribery? There might need to be some of that, yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming on a Mummy Day. You're very welcome. I'm really grateful we had this conversation. Thank you. Thank you so, so much. I'm just going to quickly take your photo, okay? Oh, okay. Okay, cool. sweet. And that was Emma Alberici. You can find her on Twitter, Alberici, E-A-L-B-E-R-I-C-I-E. Let her know you heard her here. It makes a big difference when you uh, ping the people that are on the show and let them know you heard them. It uh, helps them, you know, kind of get a sense of that it was worth their while and, and people uh, people actually listened. Uh, but, yeah, there's heaps of other episodes in the back catalogue. You can check them out. In fact, the other interview that uh, is quite similar to this is the chat I did with Lee Sales, which... Oh, you can find it if you check out the back catalogue. Send me an email if you want. Send us your email at gmail.com. Thank you very much for all the photos people have been sending me of where they listen. It's bloody great. Um, hashtag P-O-D-S-I-E, hashtag Podsy, and just tag me on Instagram, Snapchat, Twitter, or wherever. I always love to uh, see where you're listening to the show. Thank you so much for being a part of the episode. I'll uh, talk to you next week. Until we speak, then sleep well. Dream of beautiful things. I love you for listening. Thanks heaps. Bye. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Are you a reality TV junkie? Do you ever think, dang, I wish I had someone to talk to about all the trash TV that I watch? Well, look no further, garbage lover, because Reality Gaze is a podcast for you. Hello, I'm Maddie. And I'm Poodle, and we're the Reality Gaze. We talk about all your favorite unscripted shows like The Golden Bachelor, Love is Blind, and TLC's big, messy behemoth, 90 Day Fiance. And if you're driving to work, folding laundry, or just pretending to listen to your husband talk about sports, just put on the pod, and you've instantly got two gay besties spilling all the tea and reading these people for filth. So come at us, y'all. Find Reality Gays wherever you listen to podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. <laughs>